We're reading from Romans 11, uh, verse 33 to chapter 12, verse 5. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Uh, good afternoon. Extraordinary gift. You're all sitting here at the front. Uh, and that's great. Have the world's best ushers here. Either that or you've all been terrified. Um, we're going to look at uh, two verses out of that part that was read from Romans 12. They're excellent verses to have as a motto under your university career, whether it be lasting for a week or 20 years. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us wherever we are. Uh, we thank you that you're here and that you've given us your word by your spirit. And we pray that you would help us uh, in our lunch break here have enough uh, mental energy to understand what you're saying and to work out what it means for us. We pray for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, the news from the university is this, that nobody gets out of here unchanged. Um, That's at this point just an empty assertion, but I want to suggest when you get out of here, and when you reflect on it, it'll be true. No one gets out of a university unchanged. I went to New South Wales University for a week, and I can look back at that, although it didn't seem like a very momentous week then. It was a life-changing week. For starters, I decided I was not going to become a wealthy businessman, and one week of commerce was enough. I then came to Sydney University, and I was here for a week. And in fact, I began to worry at the end of it I was never going to complete anything, and I did eventually complete some courses. Well, I did university at uh, Sydney for a week, a year, which included a week. And um, looking back, that was even more life-changing in all sorts of ways. People I met, experiences I had, thoughts I had for the first and last time. Um, It was a good time. And of course, some of the most influential people you're going to meet here are some of the most intelligent people you'll meet. I do like the story. I believe it's only a story of these three people travelling on a small plane at the beginning of a holiday. In it was a science lecturer from Sydney University, Professor uh, Karen Andrews, uh, one of the legends of the university here, at the EU in particular, and a young student on holiday. 
Anyhow, they're flying along and they get a message back from the pilot. I'm terribly sorry, we've run out of gasoline. Uh, I've looked at the maps, there's nowhere to land. The plane will crash, it's on automatic pilot. Uh, listen, we have some parachutes, but only three, there are four of us. Uh, they're my parachutes, I've got a wife and kids. Um, I'm taking one of the packs and out I go. You guys can sort out what's happening after that. Well, out he jumps. Immediately the professor stands up and says, listen, let's be realists. I am one of the most intelligent people on the earth, arguably one of the most intelligent people that's ever lived. It's critical for the benefit of mankind that I not be wasted. I take a pack. So he's in the pack, out he goes. Carolyn takes a deep breath, looks at the student and says, young man, I am uh, at a point in my life, I've had a great life. It's been full, it's been tiring. I'm ready to meet with God. I'll stay with the plane, you take the shoot. Young student looks at Carolyn and says, that won't be necessary, Carolyn, because we can both have it. And she says, no, let me remind you that we're only... And he says, no, let me, let me tell you what's happened. Remember the world's cleverest man? He just took my bushwalking rucksack and jumped out of the plane with it. And see, it matters not how clever that guy might have been in some specific areas of study. In that particular area of practical knowledge, he was dangerously ignorant. And it doesn't matter for a second how sincere he is how sincerely relieved he is that he stands at the entrance to jump out thinking, I've got to shoot, I'm going to be okay. I might have sore knees at the end, but I'm going to be okay. He's wrong and he's dead wrong and he will discover that soon enough. And the critical mistake he made that affected his life somewhat was in the brain. He looked at something, he thought it was X, it was Y. He had reasons for thinking that X was Y, but it didn't matter. In the end, if he was going to live and live in a flourishing, abundant way, He needed to have a renewed mind in that particular area. He needed to think better. He needed to slow down and think more practically and truthfully. Now, one of the things that the Bible talks a lot about is your brain. In fact, interesting enough in these verses, as you're going to see, uh, is a concern about both the body and the brain that a lot of people would think that real religion doesn't have much time for. But of course, Christianity is unusual in all sorts of ways. And we're going to look today at this, just these two verses, the first two verses in Romans 12. Many of you all know them. They're rightly very famous verses. Someone who's been hanging around Jesus for a couple of years will probably have run into these verses because they, they sort of capture so much. And they are one of those great hinge statements in Romans. Romans is one of those uh, books that Christians have said for decades holds almost the whole Christian faith within these 16 chapters. A great book to sit down and read in one sitting 10 or 20 times. What he says is this, Therefore I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or logical worship. So the first thing we're going to look at today is this question of rational worship. Again, for some people who don't know much about Jesus, they may think that's an oxymoron. You can't have rational worship. But of course that's exactly what God says here, as we'll see. But the first thing to notice is that the call here is for a radical sort of worship, a radical act of service to God. So he says, I appeal to you, which is a strong emotional word, I'm begging you, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you've got a body, how many? One. You've got one body. Because of all that God has done, offer your body to God as a sacrifice. Now what happens with a sacrifice? This is all language drawn out of the Jewish temple. Well, I went for a walk with my dog yesterday through the university early in the morning. And I thought, if I was to sacrifice cocoa, right, 
can't actually offer dogs as a sacrifice, but let's assume you could. Um, it would be a question of me taking the dog, presenting it, which is the word here, presenting it to the priest who would then slash its throat and burn it. And see, Coco, who is at the moment our dog, and whom we love so much, and I think it's probably a Christian, but we can talk about that over coffee. <laughs> but, um, it's got two of the three great marks of a Christian, so there you go. But um, if I was to sacrifice Coco, she was our dog, then she would be, belong entirely to God. She would be holy, entirely belonging to God. So what, what God is saying to us here is that because of the mercies of God, give your body to God, all of it. That's what God wants. He's not interested in your spirit in some sort of ethereal way. It's your body, your hands, your brain, your head, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your genitals, every single part of you. All that is made up in the body, all your concrete existence is given to God. It's a radical call. It could seem to some an extremist call, although we know what it's supposed to have added. Not an extremist act of violence, but extreme act of love, only and always. So it's a radical call. Uh, notice also that this whole Christian thing is a responsive call. Uh, I reckon the question of Christian motivation is probably one of the most misunderstood things, even for Christians, but especially for those who aren't Christians, even if they're close to being Christian. We seem to be unable to think that the reason why Christians seek to obey God, etc., is because somehow or other we want to get enough marks to somehow or other arrive in a better paradise. That, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with why Christians obey Jesus and why they love. Look at what he says here. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The therefore is critical. The therefore is saying, because of all that's come before this, because of the previous 11 chapters, chapter 12, there's a complete change of tone and direction in the book. It's not from the you know, the dogma, the doctrine to the practical because there ain't nothing more practical than learning to believe what's true. Right doctrine is absolutely practical. And anyone who thinks they can just get on with the business of living and not get their understanding right is being thoroughly unchristian. Makes a bit of a joke of the whole of the Bible, really. But the motivation is because it's by the mercies of God. He said, have a look at the mercies of God. Remember how merciful God has been. That's what he spent the whole 11 chapters talking about. He's just finished in his great song of praise to the mercies of God that is unbelievably deep and rich. He's given this great panorama of how generous and merciful and gracious God has been to you. And the notion of mercy is that you are in deep trouble. In the New Testament sense, it's guilt. You have done evil. You have actually become, in a sense, evil. It's not just that we do nasty things. There's a part of us that is actually nasty and broken. We need mercy from God. Or at least someone like me is going to go to hell, which is exactly what I deserve. And the Holy Spirit begins to teach us. Part of his work is to help us to see ourselves as we are, desperately in need of mercy. or heading into all sorts of trouble. And so that's what he's done. And I, just, I wish we had time, but we don't, to just to flick through this whole progression of mercy in chapters. But you can do it, catching the train home. Today, you sit down and read Romans about the mercy of God. It's wonderful. The grace, the forgiveness, going from enemies to friends, to being no condemnation at all for those who trust in Jesus. None. To being impossible to separate from the love of God, ever. 
to being adopted, to being able to call the God who made the universe dad, and that be an appropriate way for you to relate to him. It's all a response to that. So she says, this radical response, this offering yourself as a living sacrifice, is because of what you've come to understand about the mercy of God. That's why you can do it. Because this is not a God that you need to keep at arm's distance. He is someone pure, unadulterated love, mercy, grace, kindness. And then he says, interestingly enough, down at the, that end of that verse there, he says, this is your reasonable worship. I don't quite understand why most of modern versions translate this word spiritual worship when the word, as you can see uh, there, is this, the Greek word is logikos, from which we get our word logic. I'm not, I don't quite get it. Some of them, like this one I've got here from the ESV, it'll give you logical as in sort of the reference in the margin. The old King James Version used to get it right. Reasonable. It's the word for thought, thinking, consistent thinking. And what it's saying is this. This is not some weird thing God's asking. It, it, once you get a view of the immense, costly mercy of God, any half-hearted response to God is irrational. It's illogical. It's inconsistent. And if you want to be able to set free to give yourself more consistently, more joyfully, more happily to God, in a sense the thing to study is not yourself and commitment, but the mercy of God. It just draws out from our heart that sort of full-hearted response. A young man called Isaac Watts, a couple of hundred years ago, hated the songs they sang in church, and with good reason. Uh, they were pretty ordinary. Um, I won't tell you what sort they were, because some of you might be still singing them if you're in a very strict Presbyterian church. Uh, and I love the Presbyterian church. But there's a particular sort of singing. And Watts came home whining to his father, and his old man said, well, if you think you can do better, write some yourself. So he did. And I think this was the first one that came off his pen, and it was called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Remember how the end goes, having spoken about his love and his suffering and his pain and his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that is exactly this. This is rational response to immense love, isn't it? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is rational worship. Rational, balanced, intelligent, informed Christianity is a passionate, wholehearted, enthusiastic body and soul thing. Otherwise, it just means we haven't actually got it. Well, let's move on. How does this work? Secondly, or briefly, he then spills out what it's going to mean for you and I to live in this rational, passionate way for God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, nobody gets out of this university the same. The only question for you is to work out what sort of change you're going to undergo. Because in their two great forms, here they are in this verse. You will either be conformed to this present age, this world, or you'll be transformed by God. Now, within the conformity of this age, there's a number of different forms that it might take. But there are a number of basic armies that are allowed to march together, which, uh, which we conform to. Everyone in our culture likes to think they're rugged individuals, which is part of the conformity of our culture. That's what our culture tells us to think about ourselves. So advertisers will get you to buy their product by telling you you're an individual, along with the other million suckers who are going to buy their product. It's just beautiful watching. Um, 
The first option is conformity, and this is what you'll do unless you vigorously pursue another option. J.B. Phillips, a wonderful translation, translates it like this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould. That's what it wants to do. That's what it will do. And in our culture, and I'm pleased if you go into the world of advertising, that's fine. It's not an evil industry necessarily. Um, But billions, back in the early 90s, it was $5.8 billion spent every year in Australia on advertising. Some of our brightest, most intelligent people work and have huge budgets in order to control and shape the way we think. And it's not the individual product that is the danger, it's the assumptions that lie behind most or all of them. And you may not be very moved by the margarine ads, but they're not aimed at you. There are ads that I think are stupid. I went to the movie, uh, a movie a while ago with a guy called Laurie, who's a cool sort of guy, and it looked like a father and son outing, but I was trying to pretend I was youngish. But we watched this ad, that one about the two here, where they're launching all sorts of things in the sky. And I was about to lean across and say, this ad just doesn't do it, does it? it doesn't work. And he was spellbound, loving it. And then he leaned across and he said, isn't that a great ad? And a Christian bloke, I don't know how much Russian he's going to be drinking, but... Uh, and this EU public meeting is brought to you by... No, it's not. Um, but it was just funny because the ad's not aimed at me, an old man nearly dead. It's aimed at young suckers. And, that, so, and they spend a lot... Uh, you will be conformed by our culture. Socrates, thousands of years ago, said, society is a prison without walls. It imprisons you without you even knowing it or feeling it, just by the assumptions and the things that we all know isn't true and that we all know is oppressive without even having studied it. I love the uh, true story that, that happened in the university in California where the students got together before this lecturer, the professor arrived late, and they decided that every time the lecturer went on this side of the lecture room, they would give spellbound attention. Because in most lectures, there's a bit of a general sort of shuffling of feet and papers and lollies being unwrapped and stuff like that. But every time you moved to this side, they'd get all restless. So they, they did it for one whole hour, the second lecture, he gave the entire lecture sitting on the windowsill on the right-hand side. He had been completely conformed and controlled by his students without, without even knowing it. Right? And that's the way conformity works. It, just, it, it rewards some things and punishes others. It may just punish you by giving you a strange look or reward you by just giving you a feeling of being on the inside. Oh, you're a clever one, you are. You're a clever student, not like this bozo over here who holds a different view. That's how culture works. Don't let that happen to you, he says. Here's the second option. The second option is transformation. This is the one he's going for. This is what Jesus is on about, isn't it, all the time? This is part of what his miracles mean, isn't it? Water to wine, the first miracle Jesus has that's recorded in John. He's saying, this is what Jesus does. He changes things. He changes people. The blind see the lame walk. No one is left the same when they start to interact with Jesus. It's about transformation. And earlier on in this book, in Romans 8, where is he taking you to if you're a Christian? If you've come to see the mercy of God and you've therefore given yourself an irrational act of worship to him, where is he taking you to? Romans 8. The destination is that you be conformed to the image of his son. It's going to make us like Jesus. Magnificent. Which won't make us all the same but in terms of our love and our faithfulness and our patience and kindness. With all the variations God has given, that's where he's taking us to. And 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, this, is, this transformation into his likeness is done by the Spirit. This is the great work of the Holy Spirit. But how does he do that? 
You have to make a choice in the end because you will change. You're just going to be an accidental conformist or a conscious transformist. Well, let's look at how this Bible says it's going to happen. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewal of your mind. Both those words have a sort of passive. We will be made to conform by the world or we'll be transformed by God, but you can work with or oppose either. Well, how does it work? Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, your brain. It's part of your body, how we work. That's how we get changed. See, in the end, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, uh, what you know and understand and believe is the all-determinate thing. As Proverbs says, as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. So the battle for your destination, the battle for your money, the battle for your lifestyle is a battle for your brain. Now, there is more to you than just thinking, a lot more. But that's the fundamental way that God addresses us, as we'll see in a moment. Central to any human society, central to any individual human life is the way that we think, the way that we've been educated by family, by school or by our tribe. And in classical mainline Christianity, in classical mainline Christianity, the mind, the life of the brain has always been honoured. Jesus, when he gets asked, what's the most important commandment? 613 commandments come down from Mount Sinai with uh, Moses. So the, the Jews would spend quite a bit of time debating what's the most important one. Can we put these in any order? They ask Jesus and he comes back with uh, the quote from Deuteronomy 6. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Some of you will know that when you go back to when Moses taught that in Deuteronomy 6, the word mind is not there. I think it's assumed in the way that um, he just picks all the basic areas of humanity. But Jesus spells it out. You love God with your brain. The issue of God and Jesus in your life with him is not somehow unrelated to your brain. It is centrally related to your brain. Why do you think God gives us a book? He doesn't give us a machine that sort of flows out emotional feelings. He gives us a book that is full of rational, reasonable arguments. That's how it works. You may not like that form of spirituality, but that just means whatever form of spirituality you've got is in disagreement with Jesus, which you're entitled to have. I just want to work out who might know the best way to relate to God the Father, you or God the Son. But he said, love God with your mind. And that's why Jesus, when you meet him in the Gospels, is almost always doing what? By choice. Teaching. Funnily enough, if you look at Mark's Gospel, which is the shortest of the Gospels, or the easiest one to get into, uh, it doesn't have much of Jesus' teaching in it. But it tells you more often than any other gospel that what Jesus did was he taught. He spoke. Ideas, concepts, pictures, debate. And in fact, in the early chapters of Mark, at one point, he leaves a bunch of people who are sick. He actually leaves them behind because he says, I must go and teach in other villages. His whole approach is ultimately to the mind. And what did the apostles do in the book of Acts? Acts 9, they debated. Acts 17, they reasoned. Acts 18, they persuaded. The approach is through the ears, is to the mind. The early church is described by one early, uh, early church historian as outthinking the ancient pagan world. So there's a group of the early Christians in the first couple of hundred years who are known by historians as the apologists. Not because they walked around saying, which heavily, sorry, um, but, but it, it comes from the, word, uh, from the Greek word which means to make a defence, 
to give a reason to count for something. This has always been the way Christians have done it. So universities, this thing that has now littered the world, started, universities in any way that's comparable to now, started in about the 12th century. Who starts them? Christians. That's just a fact of history. The Sorbonne, Oxford, Cambridge, these great centres of learning started by Christians. Other ones you may well have heard of and may even long to go to sometime, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Chicago University, Boston University. Who started them? Just look them up in the net. Read their, their charters, their foundation documents. They were all started by Christians. The Royal Society, the most important scientific society in England, in English history, over half the people who founded that were clergymen. The world of the mind, the world of the university, there's one group of people who've got a right to be here. It's Christians. Because you take away Jesus and the whole history that comes from him, it's difficult to see how universities would have happened. These aren't just the inevitable result of human progress. They came from somewhere. Now, the universities like Harvard and Yale, etc., they may have turned their back on those which, which founded them. But you don't get those institutions without Christians. Like, like many charities, they're started by Christians and then others come in and eventually the Christians have uh, trouble finding a place there. Modern science, which all of us benefit from day after day, particularly in its application to medicine and healthy water, etc., when there is any. Um, Francis Bacon, some of you all know, if you've done the sort of history uh, of science, was one of the sort of great minds that worked out the whole model of empirical science. Uh, Francis Bacon wrote this, God has written not one book but two, the book of God's words, the scriptures, and the book of God's works in nature. In both, God is revealed. And both do we study. Jan Kepler, great scientist from Europe, says what we're doing in science is we are thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what we're doing. We're, we're using our God-given mind to explore our God-given world. That's the great enterprise of the university. We, we understand his works and something of his character by what he's made. So John Wesley, one of the founding, or the founding father of Methodism, which had such an impact on human history, says this, It is a fundamental principle with us that to renounce reason is to renounce religion. That religion and reason go hand in hand and that all irrational religion is false religion. How does God renew us? How does God renew a society? How does God renew an individual? By renewing the mind. Your mind really matters to God. It is one of the things he has entrusted to you, which we will give answer to God on how we've used it. Now, you, like any gift, you can use your mind to escape God. You can use your mind to avoid God. But the mind itself is a gift from God and we are renewed as it is, remu- as it is renewed. Now, I just want to stress in case you've misunderstood, this isn't saying that all Christianity is an arid academic issue. Right? Because you see, understood, like Romans does, great, very tight arguments through Romans 1 through to halfway through chapter 11 and then what does Paul do? He bursts into song, oh the depth and the riches of the mercy and majesty of God. On he goes. Because true thinking will always lead you into song with God because fundamentally God is wonderful. Nothing but good news in God. So true thinking, true doctrine will lead to doxology and song which leads to devotion, which leads to duty. That's how it works. So the the thinking will lead to all sorts of wonderful, rich emotional experiences at times. If the battle is won or lost in the brain. Well, how are we going to go about developing some sort of a Christian mind? Just very briefly... 
It's interesting that uh, when it comes to the renewal of the brain, you know, here in chapter 12 it begins to say, how does all this work itself out the mercy of God into our lives? Well, give yourself, body and soul to God. The next thing he talks about is something, and this really shocked me when I stumbled onto this some years ago, and God does this quite often. He goes from the, the most, he says, right, now give yourself to God, to the God who's given himself to you. What's the next thing he talks about? Church. Which could not be the thing that I would talk about, even though you know, I like people coming to church except when we burn them down you do every 150 years. It's about community. If you want to be genuinely Christian in your thinking, it will be by being part of a community. The EU is, is one such community you might belong to, a local church. It is to be part of what God is doing with his body. I, I think livers are amazing. The little bits I've studied, they're amazing critters. But a liver walking down the street on its own is not going to live for all that long. But you link it up with an eye and with a pancreas and with an anus and all these other things, it can do great things. The body needs the various parts. Secondly, the Christian way of thinking will be based on the scriptures, on the words of God and the thoughts of God, God's explanation of what he's doing. And we're told to be richly dwelling in the word of God. Read Psalm 119 when you've got a spare hour. Longest chapter in the Bible. It's a celebration of the Word of God and the difference that will make to your living and your thinking and relationships. A renewed brain, a transformed mind will be Christ-centred. It will be humble as it speaks about in chapter 12, verse 3. The recognition that I'm often wrong as our modern research is often wrong. They, you know, that's one of the great things about studying the history of science is it's often made mistakes apart from the fake things we've occasionally developed. But you know, we just make mistakes. That's okay. We get it wrong here, we get it right or there individually and corporately, to have a humble mind and a mind that is thirsty for the truth because all truth in the end belongs to God, it's all part of his universe. Now some specifics for our life and universe in terms of the, the business of renewing our mind here at uni because hopefully you'll think more intensively and have more fun receiving new thoughts from intelligent, well-educated people than any time in your life at university. Here's some things I want to suggest for us. If you're part of this bunch of being rational in your worship. Be prepared to be questioned, either in lectures if they're small enough to have some discussion or in tutorials or over coffee. Be prepared to be questioned. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to be ready to give an answer to people who ask us about our hope. So if it becomes obvious that you're a Christian, we are actually commanded by God to be ready to give an answer. And if you're only a baby Christian, there'll be lots of things you haven't got an answer to. It's one of the reasons why the EU runs leading, leading people to Christ. So you can learn, how do I talk about my faith? Don't just dither from one bad experience to another. I went to, to uh, Watson's Bay Hotel just after I became a Christian. I thought, I'm just the man God needs. See, no, no humility at all. Not much now, but none at all then. I'm just the man God needs. I go into the Watson's Bay Pub to argue with all my friends to make them all Christians. I didn't win one argument all night. I got flogged. And I, now I think it makes sense. I was a one-week-old Christian. They were 18-year-old pagans. You put the strongest one-week-old kid against the weakest 18-year-old. I'm back in the 18-year-old. It wasn't that I just didn't know how to argue, how to articulate my faith. Be prepared to be questioned. One of the things you can do with each other, often great books that will help you. Moving right along, be prepared. This might even take more courage and more thought. Be prepared to ask questions. At universities, even like this great university, Lecturers, tutors, other people you meet 
will express ideas that are badly based and without research. So a student here was telling me yesterday that in their biology lecture last year, their teacher or their tutor was arguing that Christianity was the source of the uh, environmental degradation. Now the thing to do when someone makes that statement, which is rubbish, is to, is to say what you should say when I say that's rubbish. Can you give us some documentation? Uh, Professor, can, can you give us two or three books we can read um, to learn more about this? Uh, can you source that thing or is this just a thing which I think the lecture probably did use by watching a David Suzuki documentary has got a particular bias against Christianity. It's, it, the person may be a genius but they may well have got their information from the ABC which I get a lot of mine from but it, you know, it's not a, not a good source. But to, to, to politely ask a question when assertions are being made, gently, 1 Peter 3 speaks about do it with gentleness and respect. Right? Not with a I'm smarter than you sort of a I'm a smarter than thou sort of attitude, but to ask questions. Also, be prepared to be mocked. You will, if you do that, if you do it sometimes take on and challenge in a gentle way your lecture about some statement they may make about God and Jesus, etc., or Christianity. Be prepared to suffer unjustly. The power thing is all wrong. They have control. They have the last word, unless you're going to be rude. They are older than you. They will know how best to sort of manipulate the argument. An older, half-educated person can almost always be a younger person even if they're better educated just because they know what parts to ignore in an argument or what part to go for. I do it with my daughters. Right? Uh, they, are, they are probably smarter than me, I think, but I can normally beat them in an argument. It's just a thing of learning nasty techniques which you learn as you get old. It's like an old front row will do it to a young front row. That's another question. They learn nasty techniques. Be prepared that if you put your hand up and ask a question or maybe challenge something, you may feel embarrassed and you'll feel that heat of embarrassment. But it's worth doing. For starters, it will often speak volumes to other Christians in your class that someone had the courage to put their hand up and challenge. And often, you may lose the interchange, but others who are watching, they'll understand that you're in a position of weakness. And they will hear what's been said. They'll even hear the question that's been said. Be prepared at times in your university career to put your hand up and ask a question and to lose badly. And in fact, if you suffer, Jesus, what does he say? Get your dancing shoes out and start dancing. Because that's what always happens to the people of God. They suffer. It happened to the prophets, Jesus says, and he himself was mocked and crucified. So be prepared to be mocked. Uh, A friend of mine who's now a lecturer at Moore College had one of his great crises of faith when he was at Yusuf Oz University because he had a lecturer who he said was a, a very attractive personality, a well-read, much better educated than anyone Andrew had met and clearly thought Christianity was a joke. And just running into that just sort of rocked Andrew. And that's the next thing I want to say. Be prepared to be rocked at times. When I, came to, when I did my one year at Sydney Uni, um, I enrolled in biblical studies. There was a a lecturer there who's obviously no longer there now. And I thought it would be like, I get my degree and I get to this sort of advanced Sunday school, biblical study. Well, why was I in for a surprise? I went into the first lecture and this lovely, smiley, you know, she's like my mother. She was a lovely, charming lady. She ripped the guts out of the first five books of the Old Testament. Just tore them to ribbons. And I had, I had never heard of this stuff. I had nothing to argue. She went through the documentary hypothesis. Now, I just about, I was on the very verge between her lectures 
and reading Sora and Kierkegaard, I was on the verge of not being Christian. Um, what saved me in the end was this last point. Hard thinking. It was actually doing the essays and studying for the exams when I suddenly realised, what a wacky minority position this lovely lady held. I thought this was the undisputed you know, results of modern research. That everyone who was half intelligent believed that because that's how she presented it. It was nonsense. We need to be prepared to think hard. We need to be prepared to ask questions. If we discovered how this lady did her lecture, she started off with an absurdly giant statement at the beginning, which if you challenged, often the whole lecture fell apart. Just to ask, how do you know that's true? That's what universities are about, the free sharing of information and learning from each other. Be prepared to think hard. Uh, You'll hear all sorts of ideas that may seem to undermine your faith. Look, if it's not true, we all want out of it. But at the top of all sorts of fields, whether it be sociology or theoretical physics or biology, there are devout Christians. I mean, the head of the mapping of the human genome program, a magnificent thing where they work now, a devout Christian in charge of the whole thing. This is true all over the world. So you'll have some scientists who will mock Christianity, like Richard Dawkins. And really, I mean, that guy, if he was lecturing you, Richard Dawkins, he'd be a terrifying guy to be lectured to. He mocks Christianity, but he does it by using the dodgiest definitions in human history. So the definition he uses of faith, which he then attacks and sends up, is a definition that I don't think any Christian would agree with. In fact, he knows that. Because an Oxford professor wrote a book on atheism just before his, and he went through some of Dawkins' earlier definitions to show how dodgy they were. But the way forward is not to shut down and don't think, it's to think harder. It's to read more. So do the hard work of talking to Christians in that area, of going to the library and researching. What saved my faith in my first year at university was not bunkering down and pretending what I was seeing wasn't true, but doing some research, reading, studying. Anthony Flew, some of you may know, was one of the leading atheists in the 20th century. He was engaged in a number of high-profile public debates about the falseness of Christianity. In the last couple of years, he's moved from being an atheist to a theist. He's not a Christian, but he's come to the conclusion, of course there's a God. Why? Study of DNA. He knew about DNA, he's known about it for decades. But the more he studied it, he said it became utterly foolish to think it could have happened by accident. That that is a much bigger leap of faith than taking the view that behind a highly complicated thing like that with all sorts of um, code inside it, there was someone who lay behind it. To think hard. We will be rocked, we will be mocked, ask questions. A friend of mine here at Sydney Uni, an older lady was friends with her uh, lecturer, and the lecturer was saying, was ripping into Christians about something. And Julie said to her, you know, if I spoke about Islam and the way you're speaking about Christianity, you would really hammer me, wouldn't you? Why is it okay for you to speak about Christianity in a way that you wouldn't let any of us speak about Islam or Aboriginal spirituality? And I said to Julie, what did she say? She said, well, she didn't say anything. To the credit of her lecturer, I think the lecturer suddenly was confronted with the hypocrisy, the accidental hypocrisy of attacking one thing while you wouldn't let other things be questioned. Ask the gentle questions. Expect to be wrong. Make time for growth, for intellectual growth. And I don't get paid for this and I don't get paid a commission for any of this stuff, but I would suggest to you as an honest observer that there are things that will happen at the EU that will really help your mind be renewed and help you to walk confidently and honestly and with integrity through your university life and be a great service to your lecturers and other students. 
if you if you knew here, you'll hear about this thing called Ancon. It's uh, you know halfway through the year. It's about five or six days. You'll hear teaching on the resurrection, but I'll guarantee you've never heard the depth of or the like or, or like it here in many years. If you if you can be there, you want to be there. And if you can't get there because of money, I'm a grossly overpaid Anglican minister. I work for a transnational. We've just burnt the church down, so there's insurance money coming. <laughs> we we will give you a scholarship. Don't not come because of money, but even more stupidly, don't not come because you didn't think about it. You went skiing that week, which you can do any year you like. In anyone, take a week off uni and go skiing. Book it down. Right? Book it down. Because your mind will be stimulated and stretched in a way it's unlikely to be elsewhere. Even some of the EU lectures. Instead of up next week with Rowan speaking, there'll be things that will help you think in a mature, growing Christian way. All sorts of things you can do. But we do need, friends, to keep moving forward in having our brains renewed. That's how we get changed. You will either be a conformist or a transformist. And it's by the renewal of our brains. I'm going to be hanging around a coffee. If you'd like to ask any questions, uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the free country that we live in where we can say outrageous things about each other and uh, investigate various claims to truth. Uh, God, we thank you for the brains that you've given to us. We thank you for this magnificent university with all that we can learn and study and explore and discover. We pray that in our time here, our minds which you've given to us would really be developed and renewed, that we would learn to think about life in the way that Jesus does. And we pray that you would make us a blessing to all that we meet this afternoon in Christ's name.